Welcome to episode 25 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I am your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we will be talking about characterization, sort of the first in a series Kelly and I are going to do about characterization of different, well, character types. So this week we'll be starting with protagonists, you know, your main characters. So um, there are a couple things about protagonists. Uh, there's what obviously what we like and what we find appealing personally in a protagonist. And then there's what makes a, quote, objective good protagonist, which I don't know if you can ever argue that there is an objective good for anything. Um, and also some tips and tricks on how to get uh, a vivid, realistic character. Um, so uh, so let, let's just start, Kelly, you and me. Um, let's just talk about what we think makes a character or a protagonist appealing. Sure. I think that there are a couple of fundamental things that you want your protagonist to have in order to make them feel like an appealing, well-rounded character. You want the characters to be well-rounded. You want them to have weaknesses and strengths that are realistic and, and easily understandable. I find that a lot of the conflict in stories can come from, you know, characters facing their weaknesses, falling prey to their weaknesses, overcoming their weaknesses. If your character doesn't have any weaknesses, it's really difficult to get that kind of tension. And that's when you get sort of into like the Mary Sue's or the, you know, the characters that don't feel, they feel too perfect, too wonderful with no real flaws or else their flaw is, you know, something that is not an actual flaw or an actual weakness. It's, you know, it's a cosmetic weak. It's a cosmetic flaw. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of girls will be clumsy or, you know, things like that. And so weakness and, and strength equally, but I think people have an easier time latching on to their character's strengths um, and not so much their weakness, but I think you need both in balance. Yeah. I, I haven't actually pinpointed exactly what I think makes a character appealing aside from a very broad in general. They're just vivid and realistic to me. And that can depend, uh, on the writer and the book on the situation, on the premise, on a, on a whole bunch of different things. Um, and often when I find a character vivid or realistic, it, it, they just seem like somebody I would know or somebody that I could meet. And it involves a certain sort of complexity and nuance and depth to their thought processes, their feelings, the way they emotionally react to things and situations. Um, so, it, you know, n nobody likes the it depends answer, but it really does. Um, but really, I think very generally, I would say that what makes a character appealing to me is is definitely just 
vividness, I guess, is kind mm-hmm. of the word that I would use. Yeah. I also want to hope for characters and I want to fear for them. When they're in danger, I want to be genuinely concerned about their welfare. And when they're, you know, doing, I want, I want to hope for them and I want to fear for them. I want them to do great things and I want to cheer them on. And then I want to be concerned about their safety. And that for me, when I'm starting to feel those things, that's when I know that I've engaged with a character, that I care about what happens to them, that whether or not they reach their ultimate goal matters to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. There's here's here's the question I have because sometimes I find this some, somewhat interesting. Do you identify with main characters? As no. in, do you put yourself in their shoes? No. I mean, I have. I, I have. I can certainly think of different books at different times that I identified with certain characters very strongly, but those are outliers. For the most part, they're not, I I don't usually find um, someone to identify with strongly in fiction. I find people that I love. I find people that are either characters that I wish were in my real life that I could befriend and have relationships with. Um, I have a lot of fictional crushes as well. (laughs) And then I also have characters that I don't necessarily like but I'm fascinated by them and I want to know more about them, even if, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want them in my life if they were a real person because they're probably destructive and, you know, whatever. So I I have characters that I'm fascinated by and characters that I love, but it's much more rare for me to identify with a character. It's very rare for me to read a work and find a character and feel like that character is a mirror of myself. I, I would agree because I, I find this somewhat interesting that I would say this is obviously anecdotal, so this is not like a broad survey of anybody, um, but I would say that the majority of people I've spoken with, they say that they don't identify with the main character. They're sort of kind of a passive, they go along passively with the character, they're sort of watching it like a movie, even though you have, you know, feelings for the character or this or that. Um, but I know that there, there are a couple of writers and a couple of readers who do need the element of identification in order to be able to get properly emotionally invested in a book. So obviously all kinds of readers do exist. Um, but I think the identification factor is kind of important. Um, both whether or not you do or you don't. Because I think there's this tendency for writers in particular to try and make your main character appealing to everybody. But that just means, at least to me, that just means that the character becomes incredibly bland. Yes. You have to think about it as if you try to appeal to a very large audience, by nature you have to strip away so much Because the best way to appeal to mass amounts of people is to keep things as simplistic as possible. And so those characters almost become avatars. They have no real characterization. They're very bland. They're very one note. um, So that they'll appeal to a mass amount of people. But I actually think that backfires most of the time. At least it does for me. 
those kinds of things tend not to appeal with anyone because no one can connect with it in a genuine way or see some kernel of truth or something interesting within those characters. It appeals in a broad way because it's like a blank slate. And so anyone can step into that role and kind of put that mask on. And in that way, it's accessible. But people love things fervently because they see something within that, within that property that they can connect with, even if they're not identifying as in, oh, this is exactly like me, or this is exactly how I feel. There's something in it that feels true, that feels lived in, that feels real, that people will latch onto. And I feel like when you try to appeal to a mass amount of people, you, you please no one. Yeah. And as I mentioned before, vividness is what makes me what appeals to me in a character. And when you try and appeal to the broadest audience possible, it, the character becoming bland or inoffensive just kind of becomes like wallpaper. I don't really, there's nothing defining about that character. This, this specificity to me always makes something richer and deeper and much more interesting and complex. And so when we talk about specificity, I don't necessarily mean specific details like the exact color of his or her eyes or, you know, the way so-and-so smells. You know, those are kind of physical descriptions. But specificity to me is action. You know, the way a character reacts to a situation or what choices that they make. Uh, when faced with a dilemma, uh, the way they speak is actually like, those are specific character choices and character details, uh, that make a character vivid and alive for me. Um, so, okay. So we're talking about specifics and we're talking about, you know, blandness and broadness. So why don't we delve into a little bit about how to go about achieving these things, how to make a character come alive. Um, we obviously, we mentioned before showing and not telling, which is of course the cardinal rule <laughs> of, of writing. Um, but let's give some specific examples because we're talking about specificity here. So let's give specific examples where someone has shown or a writer or a book that we've read where character detail is shown rather than told to us mm -hmm. or the opposite. If we can think of the opposite first. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh, I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head. Hmm. Well, I guess for me, I think of when I think of really vivid characters that I love, I think, I'm trying to think of a more recent one that maybe more people have read is probably going to be, well, well actually let's take Cassandra Clare's, uh, her shadow hunters books. And in particular, I'll, um, I'm going to talk about the first three, which are city of bones, city of ashes and, and city of glass. And to me, the character that stood out the most in that, in those books was Simon. Mm -hmm. And trying to pinpoint exactly what it is about Simon that, that stuck out to me. Um, weirdly enough, his Jewishness, 
that's a really specific detail in that book that has significant ramifications for him, particularly, well, spoiler, you guys, he gets turned into a vampire. Um, and, you know, the sort of Christian symbols have no effect on him as a vampire, but Jewish symbols do because those are sacred and holy to him. Um, there's just kind of a lot of, and he has a funny way of, of looking at the world and reacting to things and very kind of very geeky, always talking about video games that he likes and that he plays in a very specific way. It's not this generic, oh, I'm going to go home and play video games, but he talks about specific games that he likes or specific anime that he likes and that he's watched with his best friend, Clary. All these little details to me made Simon much more vivid and realistic or the most vivid and realistic of that cast of characters. But you agreed mm-hmm. with me. You said that Simon was the one that stood out for you. Why would you say that? I would agree. It's been so long since I've read those books. I haven't read them since they were initially published. Uh, but I do remember Simon feeling like the most realistic person in that trilogy for me. And it wasn't because, you know, he doesn't become a vampire until pretty far within the trilogy. I think in the whole first book, he's just a normal guy. And um, it's not because he's the only one without powers that he felt so normal to me. It's just that he, he was so well-rounded. He had, you know, we knew so much about him. You knew that he had a crush on Clary, even though Clary didn't necessarily know that he had a crush on her. But you could tell that from the things he said, from the way that he acted, even though no one ever spelled it out explicitly. You kind of got this sense from everything that he did and the way that he reacted and the way that he spoke. All of those things are what built his character instead of someone describing him or him describing himself. Mm -hmm. I think I contrast this to Jace, um, the other kind of main guy in in the series, I will be completely honest, Jace, just as a character type, does not do it for me. Um, He's the beautiful broken boy, and that just as a character type, I'm just kind of like, okay, all right, we can move on. But Jace, we're we're told a lot of things about Jace. We're told he is beautiful constantly. (laughs) We're constantly told that he's beautiful. Uh, We are told that he is, you know, educated and refined. We are told by a lot of people, by Isabel, by, you know, sort of other characters who know Jace, but we don't necessarily always see it. You know, the the only things that we really see about Jace in the series, and is particularly in the first three books, is that he's a really good fighter with a lot of quips. And those don't, for a deep, well-rounded character, make, at least not for me. You know, just just being quippy and and good at fighting, that's like 99% of all superheroes. So, you know, so I, I, it didn't it didn't make him stand out in any particular real way to me. And, and other things happen in the series, too, where out of nowhere, Jace will suddenly speak Romanian. And you're kind of like, well, where did that come from? And why does he speak Romanian? He says... He doesn't show or tell us or anything. He says that his father taught him to speak Romanian. And then you're kind of like, 
okay, but why? None of these things kind of add up to a picture of a, what I think of as a real person or a real teenage boy. Mm-hmm. This is too. Sometimes people give their characters. They think that they're giving their characters personality traits, but really they're not. You know, when we're talking about specificity, it doesn't it doesn't translate to saying, you know, oh, this character loves this kind of music or this character plays this sport really well or this like giving your character those skills or those interests does not contribute to a well-built, well-rounded character. That's just like hanging things on the skeleton of the character mm-hmm. and hoping hoping that no one notices that it's still a skeleton, you know, yeah. instead of like a full-bodied person. Um, and I feel like a lot of writers fall into that trap where they're like, well, I want to make this person well-rounded and interesting, and so I'll give them a bunch of interests or I'll give them a bunch of traits. But it goes deeper than that. You have to have your character engage with those interests or engage with those traits rather than saying, oh, this character loves music. Let us see her bedroom with her CD collection sprawled all over the place. Let us have a scene with her driving in the car and turning the radio up and it just makes her feel so alive. You know, have your character engage with the things that they claim to love so that it feels real. Yeah. Uh, let's let's bring up Ginny and as, as an example from Harry Potter. Because Ginny, to me, never feels like a real person. No. And especially compared to pretty much every other character in the series, maybe with the exception of Harry himself. Harry doesn't isn't particularly specific in any kind of way. He's sort of like your everyman character. But he is, but even that, I would argue, I mean, he's he's a generic hero, but even so, everything that we know about him does happen organically. You know, we know he's brave, we know he's impetuous, and that's all because of the things that he does. So, right. and he's I mean, you could say very specific things about Harry. You can say that he never actually turns to adults for help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if something needs to get done or needs to happen, Harry is the kind of person to do it himself and not to go running for help. Um, because often he's kind of the only one who can do it. So, <laughs> but aside from that, you know, he's that, he's that kind of person. He's somebody who can be easily tricked as Voldemort proves in one of the books by preying on his love for people and for, all that he's kind of a bland every man in terms of a, a hero. What you can definitely say about Harry is that he's extremely protective of the ones he loves. Um, you know, and often to the point of having no distance or perspective on things. And and almost all of the other characters in this in the Harry Potter series are extremely vivid. Uh, the Weasley twins, even. Even Bill Weasley, who barely shows up in the books, but his first introduction is having a ponytail and a dragon fang earring. But that, I'm not even talking about that. It's the fact that his mother, Mrs. Weasley, is always like, can we cut your hair? And Bill's like, nah, it's fine. It's fine. Like that in (laughs) itself is such a telling character interaction about what kind of character Bill is and also Mm -hmm. what kind of character Mrs. Weasley is. 
uh, often these like character interactions will really build and 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 round and flesh out your characters. But okay. returning to Jenny, so Jenny is kind of not there for the first four books. I mean, she's there, but the trio, the main trio, and, and the, these books are obviously from Harry's point of view. They never really interact with her. She has a line here or there, you know, but like her lines are just mostly expository or they kind of move things along. Like she comes up and she's like, oh, that's Luna or, well, you know, she kind of just says things until the fifth book. And then you're suddenly flooded with a whole bunch of information about Ginny that people keep telling you, but we don't actually see. So, for example, the first time Harry arrives at Grimmel, 12 Grimmel Place, and, um, you know, they're, they've been locked out of the meeting of the Order of the Phoenix, and so he and the twins have got, like, the extendable ears, and they're, like, trying to listen. And they say something about Ginny being this, like, big firecracker of a person, and they're like, well, you've never been on the receiving end of her bat bogey hexes. And I remember reading that and being like, where did this come from? You know, because, and also remember, our first impression of Ginny is somebody who's incredibly shy, who's mm-hmm. so overcome with her crush on Car- on Harry that she can't really talk to him, that she... Yeah, and they, I feel like Rowling uses that as an excuse, and it's kind of the excuse that fans have latched onto, that because of that crush and because of that debilitating shyness... That's why we never see any of this about Ginny in the first few books. And then when she finally gets her confidence back and she's no longer, you know, crushed by this crush that she has on Harry, that's when her true personality comes out. But I don't necessarily believe that either, because even her interactions with her brothers in the first books, even when we're not watching them on on the page we're told about them later she seems very shy and you know they her brothers easily kind of boss her around or take care of her there's a whole scene where percy is really concerned in chamber of secrets that Ginny is getting sick and of course she's just kind of traumatized about the whole diary thing but he thinks she's getting ill and so he takes her to the nurse to get this pepper up potion and you know, is looking after her and everything. So it seems like even with her brothers, she has a very different relationship in the first books than she does all of a sudden later when she becomes this person who has been stealing their brooms when they're not looking and flying and stands up to them and hexes them. And it just seems like a very different... Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden she's a great Quidditch player. I mean, what about all the other Summers... Harry's come to the burrow. What? How? I mean, it's it so many things about what I felt was a certain, a sudden character turnaround for Jenny in book five. I was kind of like, what? What? And we, we're again, we're constantly told this. Harry's interactions with Jenny aren't that. There aren't that many, really. Any? Not nothing. All that substantive that I can think of in any of the books. I mean, even even in book five, when Harry, when Ginny joins the Quidditch team, um, or is that book six? That's book six. It's book six. Maybe it's something in book six where, no, doesn't she join in book five when he gets kicked mm-hmm. off by Umbridge? He's not allowed to play Quidditch and then someone fills in for him or maybe I'm thinking of that wrong. Oh, no, no, no. 
You're right. No. Uh, anyway, she just she does join the Quidditch team. I know <laughs> at that some at point, some point she does. I do think it is book six, where you know she's she's on the Quidditch team, but Harry at this point is not on the Quidditch team for mm-hmm. some reason. I can't remember why he got kicked off. <laughs> but they again, they don't have any interactions with each other as as teammates, as players. As we don't see any of this. Um, and you know, we also get told that she's dating so-and-so. We don't see any of this. I mean, this is the telling and not showing problem with Jimmy. Um, so, and as I said, compared to everyone else, like the twins, Ron, and Ron is a perfect example of a character who Mm -hmm. I find very vivid and realistic that I would not want to hang out with in real life. Um, even the tertiary characters, Seamus and... (laughs) You know, like, we have such a good picture of who Seamus is, and he has minimal lines in that book, in any well, of the books. even, like, Justin Finch Fetch- Fletchley, or yep, whatever his name is, yep. you know what Ernie he is Ernie McMillan, like. the really pompous one, who's always, like, shaking hands with people, and... Yeah, she's really good at these really small character details that kind of really you know, flesh out a character for you. So again, this is why the problem with Jenny was Jenny was Jenny. We, well, my God, I can't talk. <laughs> the problem of Jenny Weasley is such a glaring issue in her books for me, but okay. So then we, we did talk about characters where it didn't go so well, but what about characters assigned? You know, we did talk about Simon, but other, what about main characters, main characters that we love and why? Um, in my case, this is an old one, but I hope all of you have read this. And if you haven't, then I suggest you fix it is Anne of Green Gables. Mm-hmm. If you have not read Anne of Green Gables, Green Gables, we really need to fix this because they're so charming and lovely and wonderful. And of course they were written a while ago, so they're, they don't have the same narrative structure as, as books do these days. They're a little bit more episodic, but these episodes are so great. I love Anne. And Anne as character, she is extremely vivid and funny. She is an orphan. Um, she's really insecure about her looks, but not in a really kind of like, oh, I'm so ugly kind of a way. She almost takes it matter-of-factly. Like, she's like, yeah, I know I'm not pretty. I know red hair isn't fashionable, but I have a nice nose. (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, she's she's very romantic, has a lot of kind of moony-eyed romantic ideals about things. She (laughs) has kind of can get carried away by those romantic ideals. So there's a lot of Anne's misadventures in this book. Like one time she's reenacting Tennyson's poem. I believe it's Tennyson's poem. Um, And she's playing the Lady of Shalott, is it? Is it the Lady of Shalott or is it Ophelia? It's Lady of Shalott. No, I think you're right. I think it's Lady of Shalott. Anyway, so she she and her friends are kind of play-acting this, and so she's, like, in this skiff, and they've, like, dressed her hair with flowers, and they've pushed her down the river, and they're supposed to meet her down the river, but, like, in her commitment to this, like, romantic tableau, the skiff has started to spring a leak, and she starts sinking in the river, and it's just, like, all these sort of mishaps and scrapes. You know, and her being kind of vain about her looks, um, she buys hair dye to change her hair from red to a much more fashionable, quote, raven black. But it's cheap hair dye, so all it does is dye her hair green. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
she's extremely vivid. And what I also love about Anne, because these books follow her from 11 to, well, through adulthood. So they, and her growth feels natural. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as she ages, as she gets more mature, it's not that she doesn't get into scrapes or anything, but, you know, she starts to develop a sense of humor about herself. She, uh, kind of grows out a little bit of her hilarious romantic ideals about life. Um, you know, so she's to me, one of my favorite protagonists and, and all those little details that I'm relaying to you, those things that Anne does is what illuminates her character for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like somebody, it's not like the narrator is saying that Anne is, is this, you know, all we, you know, we get all of this through what Anne does. Mm-hmm. So that's a favorite of mine by you. Yeah, I was going to say her too, so you you scooped me on that. Hmm. Um, But, you know, even I think a really good more recent example, and I do love this character, um, although I know it's probably an obvious one to pick, but if we go to the Hunger Games and we take Katniss, um, she has a really strong characterization that's based entirely on the things that she says and does. She is incredibly reserved. She's emotionally cut off. Um, at you know later on in the series, she's experiencing post-traumatic stress, um, and these are all things that we know about her from the way that she engages, or even more so, disengages from the people around her and refuses to make emotional connections with people, refuses to you know establish relationships. Uh, almost in the beginning, refuses to have any hope for anything. Her mode is essentially bare-bones survival, keep your head down. You know, she's not a revolutionary. She's not out to change the world. She's just there to make sure that she can see another day and that the people that she loves, which is essentially her sister, can do that as well. And... We never are told any of that. You know, she never wastes time telling us, I have been so depressed ever since my father died and I live in this horrible dystopian society and everything's terrible. We just get all of that from the things that she does or refuses to do because the things that a character doesn't do can be as telling as the things that they do. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. Well, while we're on the subject of Katniss, why don't we talk about... Uh, well, two things, really. One, the unlikable protagonist. Mm-hmm. And the strong female character. You can't see me, but I'm putting air quotes around that phrase. <laughs> yeah. Um, because Katniss can and, and is considered both. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people don't find Katniss likable at all. Um, and I will admit that I often find Katniss frustrating. It But here's the thing about an unlikable protagonist. It doesn't mean that the character isn't compelling. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that the character isn't understandable. Like, you can... Like, I understand why Katniss does the things that she does, even if it makes me want to, like, grab her by the shoulders and just shake some sense into her. Um, You know, but the fact that she elicits such a strong reaction from me at all is a testament to her characterization. But let's, let's, let's start with the, the unlikable protagonist. Mm -hmm. 
I know a lot of people when they're on submission or when they're querying or, you know, you know, they're having their work read and sometimes the feedback that they get is the character is unlikable or I can't relate to the character or whatever. These are two separate issues, to be completely honest. An unlikable character can still be a really wonderful protagonist if they are if if the way that they look at the world is so skewed or so different from you that in itself can be really compelling like uh gone girl mm-hmm. i hate both of them <laughs> both of them loathe the two of them mm-hmm. and i could not put this book down i mm-hmm. i just wanted to know what what they you know what they were doing what you know, what they did to each other. I wanted to know the whole history of these two horrible, horrible people. Um, and so you don't have to have a likable protagonist to make your book good. So when you get rejections saying that the protagonist is unlikable, sometimes that's code for uninteresting. Yeah. Um, and unsympathetic. You can have an unlikable protagonist, but they can still be sympathetic. Uh, and unsympathetic is, a, for me, an unsympathetic character is, I just don't care. I, I'm not emotionally invested. This character is too stupid to live, makes really you know stupid decisions, dumb decisions, really frustrating decisions. It's often decision-making, to be completely honest. I think... The choices a character makes is really what decides that character's personality. And for me, when a character is incredibly frustrating and doesn't make any rational sense or doesn't make any rational decisions, I find that character unsympathetic. Not necessarily unlikable, just completely unsympathetic to me. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of related to the I can't relate to this character. But that is far more personal, I think. You can write a perfectly fine character, a really wonderful, vivid character, and you could still have people not connect to that character. Now, the difference is, is when everyone is saying, I, can, I can't connect to the character, that probably means then that you haven't done enough work to flesh that character out and to give that character life and, you know, to make that character breathe. So, uh, well, what about you, Kelly? What do you think about unlikable, unsympathetic can't relate to protagonists. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, there's something to be said for the unlikable protagonist and that they can be really compelling because in a way it's really fascinating if you have this person making these horrible choices that you would never make or pursuing these goals that you don't agree with. And yet... There's something so dynamic about that person that even though you don't agree with what they're doing or what they want, you can't help but follow along as they go through things. We see a lot of, um, not necessarily unlikable in personality in terms of characters, but I'm seeing more and more protagonists lately with questionable professions. We're seeing a lot of thieves and assassins and... You I don't know, know. I feel like those have always been kind of popular. Murderers. At least they've been popular in fantasy. 
Well, they have, for sure. And most of them are quite likable uh, people. They might be flawed and they might have this terrible profession, but the characters themselves are, for the most part, intended to be likable people. But then you have characters, and most of them are characters that you actually really latch onto. All the ones that I'm thinking of are right now are in television, but, you know, Ben from Lost, <laughs> Gaius Baltar from Battlestar Galactica. You know, these people are not likable. We don't see them on the screen and wish that we were best friends with them because they're such kind and caring, uplifting people. They are complicated, dark, disturbing people who are nonetheless fascinating in the things that they do and the things that they choose to pursue and the way in which they pursue those things. And I think what it boils down to ultimately is that unlikable protagonists must be compelling. There must be something about them that you cannot look away from. If it's, you know, whether it or not it's that you want to see them change and become better, whether or not it's that you want to see them, you know, fall to their doom, whether or not you want to see them walk that tightrope and see how much they can get away with and how much they can keep in balance. No matter what it is that you're in for, you have to be in with unlikable protagonists. I Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean... There's unlikable protagonists, usually amoral protagonists of any sort. A lot of people tend to find unlikable because most of us like to believe we're good people. And so when you read about a character who actively chooses not to be, quote, good on the, on the right side of morality, that it can be really interesting as a protagonist, providing that that character adheres to an internal sense of logic. Mm-hmm. If they don't in- adhere to an internal sense of logic, then you just, then, right. then you have an unsympathetic protagonist. Mm-hmm. But well, Snape yeah. is one too, because yeah. people love Snape. I love Snape. I mean, if you go anywhere on the internet, there is Snape love all over the place. And Snape is really pretty terrible. Yep. In, in basically every way. Even the reason why he is helping Harry and why he has come over to the good side is also pretty terrible. Yep. <laughs> he hasn't seen the light. He doesn't want good to win. He's just devastated by the loss of the woman he loves and, and his role in her death. And so he's trying to atone for that one thing, but he's not trying to make the world a better place. You know, he hasn't had a change of heart. Yeah, he's, he's just, not actually a good person. <laughs> no. And he is terrible to Harry and to all of his students. And, you know, pretty much everything that he does is horrific, but he is so compelling because he has made these choices that are fascinating. He's chosen to work to save Harry's life, but he's not going to befriend Harry or show him any affection or, or even help him. give him a fair shot. Yeah. Yeah. He does. In fact, he does a lot actively hinders Harry and he's so bitter. I mean, if you think about Snape, he, as a character, he is directly responsible for Lupin losing his job. Um, 
also directly responsible because there's it's more in the background than it is obviously in the main story but there's legislation passed prohibiting werewolves from getting jobs and that's pretty much directly due to the fact that snape let it slip to somebody in the ministry that a werewolf was teaching at hogwarts and uh, mm. he also can't get over his own hatred of Sirius to basically work together, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's just, he's not he a knows, good person. No, he knows for a fact that Lucius Malfoy is a Death Eater and yet interacts with him socially and... You favors know, his son, you know? Mm-hmm. He, clearly Draco is his favorite student. You know, there's a lot of... But despite the fact that Snape isn't a good person... He's still compelling. There's something really compelling about this story of a man who needs to atone for something. You know? So even if your character isn't unlikable, or isn't likable, rather, as as long as you give them a reason for being that makes sense, that people can latch onto, that makes them compelling and to some extent sympathetic like i think snape is a terrible person and i don't think i would have made the choices that he makes but wanting to atone for a wrong that you've done is in is sympathetic like you get that you understand that even if everything else around snape is terrible uh everything else about snape rather is terrible but if you don't have that way into the character if you don't have that one thing that makes sense then you go from being unlikable to completely unsympathetic. Mm-hmm. If there was nothing, if there was, if Snape did not have that aspect about him and was just horrible to Harry, I don't think there would have been that much. There would have been no, no love for him. Whatsoever. It would have been Umbridge. I mean, no one loves Umbridge. She is despicable. There's she's nothing the worst. redeeming about her whatsoever. She's the worst. I mean, she's a great villain, which we'll get to mm-hmm. in a separate <laughs> episode. But she's the worst. <laughs> Um, so, but also let's let's move on briefly to this notion of a st- of a strong female character, which we may have to reserve for a whole separate episode because uh, Kelly and I have a lot of thoughts about this topic, mm-hmm. and I feel like a lot of it has been said as well. I think everyone universally is fed up with the strong female character. And by that, I don't mean strong female characters in and of themselves. I mean the phrase strong female character and what people seem to think that it means. Strong female character does not mean, or should not mean, although it has come to mean, a kick-ass, badass girl in fiction who is strong or is, you know, physically strong or fast or, you know, somehow, um, you know, like you think Katniss is one, you think, you know, who else is a Triss from, um, the Divergent series. Buffy. Yeah. Buffy. All of those. Yeah. That's what strong female characters come to mean. But the cry for strong female characters was not about that. It was not about, I want a heroine who kicks ass. It was about, I want a heroine. I want a real heroine who is a real person, who people can relate to, who is more than just an avatar, blank slate, you know, shell of a girl. I think that 
when we say strong, we're not talking about physical strength. We're talking about the strength of the characterization. Yes, because to be completely honest, what we when we say strong female character, all the traits that we would consider strong in any character, regardless of gender, should be applied to said female character. You know, someone who is active in their own story. Someone who, even if they may not necessarily have agency because of the events of the novel, who takes active, who makes active decisions and choices. Um, also, characters who screw up and then fix it. You know, these are basically we we want real three dimensional characters, and that was what the original cry for strong female characters was for and it was in some respect a bit of a backlash i think to the perceived characterization of female characters as being virtuous and waiting for you know their virtue to save them or to redeem them or um uh, and and not to say that those are bad either those are not bad traits necessarily it's just that you saw this a lot and you saw a lot of main female characters conforming to typically a male character uh, or society or, and so that is not strength. If you are just passively going along with what the story is throwing at the character, that's, that's not strength. That wouldn't be strength if it was a male character. So that was kind of what it was, but then it kind of morphed into needing this quote, kick ass female, but Basically, then, that what it did was that you just have a female character that is essentially a male character. And there's then nothing really female. I mean, obviously, gender is fluid and it's a construct and everything. But the way society treats a, a female person and the way that the way treatment of society informs the way a female person reacts to things and thinks about things distinguishes, you know, between, to me, between the genders when it comes to a book. And it just, I saw a lot of female characters. This was, it's less of a problem now, but I would say probably like five years ago, this kind of created a spate of female characters that had all the outward traits of a, of a kick-ass warrior. And I love warrior figures, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but you know, they're like, can beat up bad guys and do this and do that, but you know that didn't necessarily make the character strong even if like even if they could wield a sword really well if they didn't make decisions in their own lives if they didn't you know make active choices if they didn't do something about their own story as opposed to letting the story carry them along then i didn't consider that a strong female character regardless of whether or not they could kill five demons at once mm-hmm. but i i think it's i think it's better now i don't think it's you know, I think we've kind of moved a bit beyond that discussion in fiction. Yeah. I think it's still a, still kind of a problem in, in movies. It's a huge problem in movies. Um, I think in, in fiction, and I think to some extent in television, we've sort of kind of pushed beyond that a little bit. Uh, and, the, and the conversation has been changing. But yeah, that's kind of my first piece on, on, on the strong female character trip. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think? Does that kind of wrap it up for our first installment of characterization? I know we're going to talk about lots of different characters in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, this pretty much has, is 
more or less what I want to say about characters and, and protagonists in particular. I think characters for me, or at least when I'm writing them, for me, it's it's like a, a process of discovery. I, I get, I discover the characters. I discover the corners of the characters. I know a lot of people who, before they start writing, they have those like character worksheets, you know, they've got like traits like hair, eyes or whatever, and, and like personality traits and things like that. I I don't work like that. For me, I have to discover the character and that discovery comes from the situations I put them in, you know, how they react in a certain situation. And this, and sometimes my characters surprise me, you know, and like, I'll, I'll use an example from Winter Song. When I was first writing Winter Song, apparently my main character has this kind of disdain for kind of like pretentious people, <laughs> which I didn't, it, I didn't consciously go in there and say she's got a disdain for pretentious people, but it just sort of organically came out. Um, so but there are two ways to approach it, the way I do it, which is what I call inside out writing. Or you can do it outside in. And both are completely valid. So, um, But I'm not an outside in writer, so I can't tell you how to start that way. <laughs> uh, if you have a character worksheet and it works for you, that's great. Please let us know how, that, how you go about building your characters that way. Because um, I can't offer any advice on that front. So. But that, that's more or less it for me, I think. All right. So, what are you reading? Still nothing. <laughs> I'm still in a reading rut. So, I've got all these books in from the library, as I've, I've mentioned before, but I just, you know, I just have not been reading them. I keep going back to books that I've read before, but not even, like, rereading them, just, like, parts of them. Uh-huh. Kind of, you know, like, comfort reading, but it's yeah. not really reading the book it's just like I don't have to think I already know a selection yes <laughs> a tasting menu of your favorite books. pretty much that's that's where I am right now I I don't know why I'm just not in the mood to read uh I've I've spent a lot of time just I've rediscovered it's gonna sound really weird I've rediscovered boredom and it's kind of great <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, lately what I've been doing is, um, I try and, and go for a walk every day outside and to get some sunshine and everything if it's, if it's sunny. And usually on those walks, I would either be listening to an audiobook or I'd have a podcast or, or whatever. And when I mm-hmm. drove, I had a podcast or an audiobook. When I went to the gym, it was the same thing. And just recently I just, I'm, I'm kind of in a rut all over the place. Cause like I've, I've, all my podcasts are backlogged and everything. I just haven't listened to them because I'm enjoying the being in the moment and allowing myself to be bored. And mm-hmm. when I'm allowing myself to be bored is when ideas start to come to me and when I, you know, I start daydreaming about things and I forgot how much daydreaming can be fun. Um, so that's kind of the reason I really haven't been been reading much. So what about you? Last night, I just started the Young Elite sequel, The Rose Society, mm-hmm. by Marie mm-hmm. Liu. So I just began that. That came in from the library. And then I recently 
published a post on Pub Crawl about reading aloud, which is something my husband and I do. And we have started a new book as well. I got him reading, uh, we're doing Red Rising, which I just read nice. myself. But now we're reading them out loud. <laughs> yeah, those are pretty good read aloud books, I think. I think so. We we need really specific things in our books. We tend to do best with fantasy, sci-fi, action, adventure stories uh, that are really fast-paced and, you know, have a lot going on. Um, so I think it will be a good a good one for us. And I think he would like it anyway, and I was trying to get him to read it on his own, but his reading time is even more limited than mine, and I realized that he was never going to read it you know, anytime soon in the next three or four years. So if I wanted him to read it sooner, I needed to make it our read aloud book. So <laughs> that's what I did. Does he listen to audiobooks? He does not. Uh, he used to for a while. He was commuting in the car and listening to audiobooks then. But then I accidentally got him into podcasts. And now podcasts have taken over that time. He cannot listen to anything at work because he is in back-to-back meetings all day. So no audiobooks for him anymore. He used to a little bit. That's a pity because Red Riding, the Red Rising books in audio are fantastic. Oh, really? They're really, really good. Yeah. Uh, the narrator is really, really, really good. So if, you know, if there's that too, you know, I know he runs and I know he you know, does all that stuff, so... Yeah. If he wants to listen to it on audio, then I, I would highly recommend it. It's funny because, like, I think your read-aloud books are the criteria that I look for in the audiobooks that I listen to. Mm-hmm. I need, like, generally it's going to be science fiction fantasy. Sometimes it could be mystery. But basically something that's, you know, pretty plot-heavy that the action moves along quickly. Uh, I need yes. those in an audio form. as Like, when if when it's... When I'm reading a book, I don't need that. But when I in audio, I do. So, mm-hmm. um, so then, what? Any off menu recommendations? Have you been doing, listening to, watching anything? No. Wow, I don't think anything new at all in the last week, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> it was just Easter weekend this past weekend and my daughter slept over my mother-in-law's house for the entire weekend and it was magical. I slept late every day and then even after I woke up I just laid in bed with coffee. It was pretty <laughs> miraculous. We had friends come over on Saturday and we played board games all day. We played uh, Carcassonne. Yes, I played Carcassonne. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty much the only thing I've been really into lately. We played like six or seven Carcassonne games. I had the most wins of the day. I had two, which was more than anyone else. So, <laughs> Mark and I actually really like game night. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we like having our friends over and playing board games. Mark really likes games of all kinds. Um, both video games, computer games, strategy games, card games, board games. I am not a big game person in any format, but I do like board games. I like, you know, so what we've been playing fairly recently is Betrayal at, uh, Betrayal at the House or something like that. Oh gosh, that's going to bother me now what the name of that board game is. But essentially it's a game where you're, you're various characters in a house and you're kind of building this house in different rooms and things like that. 
um, and you know you have X amount of movements or whatever. Um, but at a certain point, a condition happens, um, and one of you is the betrayer. So there's a villain in the game, and then everyone else has to fight the villain. So the playbook has like a whole bunch of different scenarios for whatever the game is. So it's it's actually pretty fun. Um, I've been the villain a couple of times, and I've fought off whoever the villain becomes. Usually, whoever becomes the villain has to like leave the room, and then they have their set of information that they're reading that they can't tell you, and we have our set of information. So that's that's pretty fun. It's going to bother me now. I'll put the link in the show note once the name comes to <laughs> me. What the name of this game is. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to like collaborative board games like that. So like Mm -hmm. anything where you have to work together to be, a like a big boss or anything like that. Like for a while we were playing Arkham Horror, which is kind of a Lovecraftian kind of a game, but we stopped playing that because I think we actually defeated most of the elder gods and each game takes like 13 hours to play. So (laughs) we're just like, eh, never mind. Um, but yeah, I think I didn't I haven't consumed anything particularly new aside from Avatar the Last Airbender, which is not new at all. It's just me rewatching it for our podcast. And at that point in our rewatch too, where all I want to do is just binge ahead to the end. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's killing me to do it week by week. Um but yeah, that's that's all for me on the off mini recommendations front. Are you working yeah. on anything? No, freelance stuff. Uh, I'm doing some editing, but the same stuff I was editing last week, so nothing new. What about you? I am working on copy edits. Uh, They Mm. go back on Monday. Um, And, oh, I think... I think we have our final cover for Winter Song. Yay! Uh, so I'm pretty excited. I need to have the go-ahead to share it, but uh, once I get the okay, um, I will be sharing it on my newsletter first. So if you guys are subscribed, you'll be seeing it before we kind of share it to the broader public. But I am pretty stoked. It's uh, It's gone through a couple of different iterations <laughs> before we finally came to this version, but it's gorgeous and I love it. So I, I can't wait that's all for this week next week we'll be doing another segment in our characterization series we will be talking about villains as always if you want more please subscribe via itunes stitcher podcast pickle or your podcast provider of choice also if you like us please rate and review and you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast if you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at sjjones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye! Bye! Thank you.